Hebrews 9, verse 15 through 28. You can follow along as I read aloud. Of course, the author of Hebrews is writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these things come to us with authority and the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Hebrews 9, beginning in 15. Therefore, he, he being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For while a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. For it was, to offer, it was not to offer himself repeatedly as the, high price, as the high priest enters into the holy places year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has suffered once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will also appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we continue our Advent series today. We have been looking at Jesus through the book of Hebrews in different ways. We looked at him as a priest, the true priest. We've looked at him as the true prophet. And today, we're going to be looking at him as the, as the true sacrifice. Now, there's something that's very important in Christianity that, for the most part, has kind of been lost in Christian preaching for the past 30 or 40 years or so, and that is this idea of blood. If you read the Bible, you know that blood is a very central theme. I mean, obviously this passage, it's very central to the passage. But for modern people like us, this idea, this idea of blood sacrifice, let's be honest, it seems very primitive, very out of date. And beyond primitive and strange and out of date, it's also just kind of impractical, right? Why the blood sacrifice? It's kind of strange. Why not just do something good, right? Like if you do something bad, you feel bad about that, 
Why not go do something good? Why not go do something for the poor? Why not go serve the oppressed? Why not go visit the prisoner? If you're guilty, why not go take positive action? What good is all this blood, right? What good are all these dead animals? What good is all this blood sacrifice? And that's a good question. I think it's a question we need to think about. It certainly speaks to the reliability of Scripture, to the relevancy of Scripture. I mean, is this just weird? Is this just out of date? Do we really actually believe this blood stuff that we sing about and talk about and we say things like the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus, is this relevant to us? So three things I want to look at today. Number one, why do we need blood? Number two, the problem with blood. And number three, the the power of Jesus' blood. So why do we need blood? (laughs) Is this really relevant to us? Is this just something that we've kind of passed by, passed over? Now, of course, for a long time in human history, uh, this idea that we see in Scripture, this idea of blood sacrifice was not uncommon. It's not only true in, in Hebrew culture, but it's true in many ancient religions. There was an idea of the sacrifice of animals for the atonement of sin, for the covering of sin, the sacrifice of animals to kind of cover for uh, the impurities of the people. In some ancient world religions, it was actually human sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of other people that would bring about this kind of purity from sin. There was this notion, there was this reality, there was this belief that we see in the text that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, there's no remission of sin. They had this notion that the only way to truly purify your soul, if it's stained by sin against God, is, is death. And of course, this is what we see in the Hebrew system. God had given this to the people. They were, they'd, he'd given them a law and he gave them sacrifices. They couldn't keep the law. And so to come back into fellowship with him, when the law was broken, there was a sacrificial system. There were all these sacrificial rites. And of course, the, the book of Leviticus outlines this sacrificial system very well, very thoroughly, uh, that people would bring bulls and goats into the temple of God. And, and what was happening? There was a few things happening. First of all, they were admitting their guilt. It was a confession of guilt. They were saying, I have done something that has displeased the Lord. It was also a sign of brokenness, that that sin, that their disobedience to God brought about a sense of brokenness and death, right? You, You don't want blood leaving your body. And so this sign that blood was leaving the body of the animals, it was a sign that this is not the design. This is not the way it was supposed to be. It also, of course, was was costly. It showed the seriousness of their sin. It it showed that their sin actually was a serious offense against God, that it was a cost. God was teaching them that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It was actually the impracticality of it. We we talked about the practicality of it. It, The impracticality of it was the lesson. The the impracticality of it was what they were supposed to see. It didn't produce any good. Their sin produces no good. Their, Their sin actually only produces this great loss, this costly thing, this great sacrifice. Only death could make them clean again, only through death. And here's the, here's the real issue. Only through death could they come into the presence of God. There's this theme throughout the Bible that the righteous, the pure, are invited in, right? The, the wicked, the impure, 
are cast out. And so the impurity of their sin required a sacrifice. There had to be some means by which they could come back in. They could be purified and come back in to fellowship and the worship of the Lord. And the whole temple system where they would where they would do this, where they would have these sacrifices, they would worship the Lord. It was all designed with this series of altars. There was three main altars that they went in, the, the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, and then finally, even the, the very ark of God itself, the mercy seat, the, the place where the glory of God dwelled and the holy of holies, itself was an altar, an altar of sacrifice. Of course, the, the, that altar was only truly activated one day a year, the, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, if you have Jewish friends, the high holy day that's still celebrated to this day. And on that day, in ancient times, the high priest would go in, only the high priest, after many purifying rites, would go in before this holy place of God, before this place where God dwelled, and he would make a sacrifice for the people. It was an unblemished lamb. It was a sign to the people that their impurity would cause the pure lamb, the unblemished lamb, the undefiled lamb, that their defilement against God's law would cause this undefiled lamb to die before the Lord. And he would take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it on all of these objects of worship. He would sprinkle it on the ark of God to purify their worship before the Lord. And there was another lamb, the the scapegoat, the azazel, the outcast lamb, And this priest, after he had made the initial sacrifice, would take his bloody hands and he would place it on the head of the Azazel, of the scapegoat. And in a sense, he would confess the sin of the people. He would would transfer the impurity of the people to this other lamb, to this Azazel, to this scapegoat. And then the scapegoat would be cursed taken out of the city. It, it, would, it would bear, if you will, the shame, the ugliness, the horror of the people. And, he, and the scapegoat would be put outside of the city walls, cursed, bearing the shame of all of the people. And it was a sign to them that, that their sin had been outcast. Their, their sin had been paid for. Their sin had been atoned for. Their sin had been put out of the city. Now, if you were just by chance on the Day of Atonement walking outside of the city and you were to see the Azazel, <laughs> the scapegoat with blood on its head, you know what you would do? You would run from it. You would recognize the curse. You would recognize that it was impure, that it was, in a sense, carrying the guilt of all of the people. So... They obviously had this sense. (laughs) Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without death, there's no purity of sin. There was definitely this sense among them, but but does it still exist? I mean, is this sense still among us? Is this practical? Is Is this relevant to us? Do we have this sense that our sin stains us, that we have to be purified some way? And then that purity comes at a great cost. You know, there's a lot been written recently about justice. Justice is a fascinating topic in kind of the broader, more academic, I guess, conversations right now, but really on a, on a kind of pop social level also. People are very concerned with justice. I mentioned a few weeks ago the book, uh, The Weirdest People in the World by Joseph Heinrich. And it's a, Joseph Heinrich, he teaches at Harvard. It's a, he's an atheistic, very secular professor. But he's, he's try, they're trying to understand kind of the sensitivities of our, 
our modern moment. And, and, and basically the point of this book is he's saying that Western thought, Western ideology, the way that people in the West kind of interpret the world, understand morality, is weird. <laughs> we take it as natural, right? We, we think, well, this is just the way people think. This is just the way people are. But he's saying, actually, it's not. Our sensibilities, our understanding of humanity, our understanding of law, our understanding of ethics, they've all been shaped or framed by something. And so weird, actually, is it's an acronym. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And he's saying, we're the weird ones. We have all been shaped by something. We in the West kind of look out as if our understanding of the world is right and the rest of the world you know, must think the way that we do. But Heinrich actually makes the argument. Again, he's not a Christian. He's an atheist. He's a very secular person. But he makes the argument that much of our ethic, much of our understanding of the world, much of the way that we understand how the world is, was formed, shaped in Christianity. You, you can't understand kind of a modern Western sexual ethic, or sexual or secular, without understanding uh, Christianity. And so, for example, he, he does all these studies. And he says, it, it, in, in a secular world, when you start to kind of pull out Christian beliefs, right, like the people of the Enlightenment thought you could do. You don't need all these stories. You don't need all this blood stuff, right? You can pull all that out, and you still get a good ethic out of it. But he says when you start doing that, the, the whole thing actually begins collapsing. And that's really what the book is kind of outlining. So one of the things that, that collapses, you know, for example, is if, if you start, if you pull out, for example, the fear of judgment, that there will be a final judgment one day, right? That um, will face God someday. If you pull that out, crime rates go up. Now that might be obvious, right? We might think, okay, well, yeah, sure. Crime rate, no fear face of God someday. Crime rates are going to go up in a society. But he says there's also these unexpected things. So these things that are a little stranger that, that change in culture. So if you pull out the fear of judgment before God someday, he actually says the society becomes less forgiving, less merciful toward one another, less compatible with one another. Now that's interesting, Right? You pull out the fear of judgment of God and all of a sudden people forgive less. Right? You'd, you'd almost think, well, they'd be more forgiving. Right? They're, they're, they're kind of rejecting that you know, there might be some judgment someday, but they actually are less forgiving, less merciful, less compatible with one another. Why is that? Now, again, we're seeing this in this moment in time we live in, right? If there is no fear of judgment, if, if, if I can't say that God is going to hold that person accountable, then I am responsible to bring justice and judgment to this person. And so I can't forgive them. I have to make sure that they are punished and punished good. I have to make sure they pay. We live in an age where things like forgiveness and reconciliation are, are tricky, and there's this heightened sense of impurity in this age. You know, I have friends. I have friends that have not spoken to one another since the 2016 presidential election. Because there's this heightened sense of impurity, right? It's, it's oh, you voted for him? You voted for her? Ick, ugh, ah. I can't be associated with somebody that has that ethical framework. I can't be associated with it. You're stained. You're, you're of them. You're like that. This is all just kind of a reorienting of justice and righteousness and purity in a secular age. There also is this scapegoating that's a real phenomenon in the world today. There was an interesting article this summer in the Washington Post. And basically the point of the article is we need someone to blame. 
When you recognize sin in your life or in the society at large, you, you have to have a scapegoat. You want something to blame. So your personal sins, right? It's my parents' fault or it's my teacher's fault or it's the system's fault. And of course, society at large, when we recognize our own societal issues, like things like racism or inequality or sexual abuse, we need somebody to blame for that. It's not me. It can't be me. And so it must be them. It must be him. And so, you know, it's, it's the media's fault or it's the police's fault or it's Wall Street's fault. And as long as there's a good scapegoat, right, as long as there's a Bernie Madoff going to jail every once in a while, we can kind of return to the norm and feel like we're okay, we're, we're pure again, we're, we're all right. And it's interesting, it's not just jail, too. There have been stories, many even recently, of people awaiting execution on death row for a very serious crime, but taking their own life before they're executed by the state. And so many of the reports are that is people say, well, I was robbed of justice. There's this, there's this sense of justice didn't really happen. Now, what is that? You see, we don't live in a culture of blood sacrifice. <laughs> we don't live in an age of blood sacrifice, but we, we do live in an age as sophisticated as we think we are, <laughs> as advanced as we think, you know, there's this thing in us that still has this sensibility toward justice, toward purity, we still have this sense that there has to be a price for sin. And as, as long as that sin or impurity remains, there's a distance factor. There's a nickiness about it. There's a scapegoat. They're canceled. They're scapegoated. They're cursed. Sophisticated as we may think we are, we, we still need blood. We still know that there is some impurity that comes with sin that has to be dealt with. But the second point of the sermon then is the problem with blood. The problem with blood. Now, this system, this Hebrew system, this, this first system, the author of Hebrews is getting at this. <laughs> there was a problem with it. There's all these sacrifices that were made. I mean, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, dead animals everywhere. Day of atonement, day of atonement. There, there was a sacrificial system that went on, but the people weren't getting any better. That was the problem. The people were actually, if you read the narrative of the Old Testament, even though the sacrifices were going on all around them, they were getting worse. They, they were less holy. They were less loving. They, they showed less regard for God's law. The people didn't love God. They didn't keep his law. They kept on sinning. He'd given them the law. He'd given them this sacrificial system. It was supposed to teach them about the seriousness of their sins. It was supposed to remind them of their brokenness. It was supposed to remind them of their guilt, but they, they never got less corrupt. They just kept getting more and more corrupt. And you know, I think the same thing is true of us. Sure, we scapegoat people. We cancel people. We give a big donation to cover for some guilt we may have. We participate in a march to make ourselves feel better about some past sin. But is it, has this made us more holy? <laughs> has it made us more generous, more humble, more loving toward God and toward others? Has it made us more loyal, more self-sacrificing, or has it just made us more self-righteous and self-centered than we've ever been? And these people did all this sacrifice. They shed all this blood but it didn't change them. It, it, it may have given them this sign of covering, but 
It didn't really change their hearts. You know, finally, God says in 1 Samuel, after all of these sacrifices went on, and the people had this sacrificial system, they had this law, but they were just like all of the nations around them. Finally, God says, it's obedience I desire, not sacrifice. If you really got what I was trying to teach you, there wouldn't be more and more and more sacrifices. There would actually be less and less and less, less sacrifices. You're supposed to be learning to stop sinning. It's not, this isn't just your get out of jail free card so you can keep sinning all the more. You're supposed to have less sacrifice. You're supposed to be growing in holiness and in righteousness. I want you to be changed. God said to the people, I want you to love me. I want you to obey me. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10. We didn't read it, but look at it with me real quick. It says, since the law was just a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these reality, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, right? This is what the other he was saying, that there should have been fewer sacrifices. That if it was actually going to make the people perfect and holy and righteous, they wouldn't have had to have so many sacrifices. Having once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. Remember that word, this idea of consciousness. But you see what he's saying? He's saying if the law and the sacrificial system could really purify the people, they wouldn't need more sacrifices. They would need less. They would be being made pure and clean. And so verse three and four, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The people aren't being purified. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system was good. It was a reminder to the people of their brokenness, of their need for the Lord, but it was limited. It couldn't make the sinner perfect. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And it was impossible, at least in two ways. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually atone for human sin. And it was impossible for this kind of sacrificial system to really change the hearts of those humans. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually atone for human sin. And it was impossible for this kind of blood sacrifice to actually change the hearts of humanity. And that leads me to the third point. And that is the power of Jesus' blood. Why is Jesus' blood so powerful? Why is Jesus' blood so powerful? Why is this something we sing about in church? Why is this something that we, it's so central to what we believe as Christians? You know, I just said the problem with the blood of bulls and goats is that it can't really atone for the sin of humanity and it can't really change humanity. An animal sacrifice, a large gift to charity, participating in some march, all of these things can remind us that we are broken. It can remind us that we need deliverance. All of these things are good things, but they can't really make you clean because even though these things may be adding a pile of good deeds to your record, they never actually deal with the stain of sin that is on your heart. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. So how do you get rid of the stain? As I mentioned, there's this idea of the conscience it keeps coming up. The author of Hebrews is very obsessed with this idea of the conscience. Chapter 9, 9, 9, 14, 10, 22. It's all about having a clean conscience. How can you be declared clean before God and actually have a clean 
conscience. You know what that means, a clean conscience? It means how can you be opened up? How can you be opened up and declared clean? When, when your heart is opened up, are you clean? <laughs> are you free? When all is known, you know, are you free? Are you undefiled? Or do you have this embarrassing stain? Do you have this thing that you know is in there? We do all this good stuff, and sure, those are good things. They may add to our record of goodness, but they don't purify the stain. They, they don't take away the, the blood on our hands. You could say it this way. It's as if we have blood that's in us that is defiled, that is sick, that is stained, that is diseased. When I was a kid, there's this very famous story of a boy named Ryan White, and he got AIDS from a blood transfusion. This was the early days of AIDS, and it was this horrible story. He was 13 years old, and he, he got a blood transfusion. Blood had HIV AIDS, and this boy got sick, and this was a time when it was very, you know, kind of socially strange, and he was, you know, really outcast. It's a very sad story, and he eventually died five years later uh, from this disease. In a very real sense, the message of the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood of Jesus, is that he has taken our sick, disease-ridden, impure, defiled blood, and he's given us his undefiled, righteous, and pure blood. He's taken our record, our life, what's in our heart, of disobedience to God's law, and he's given us in exchange his record of righteousness, of love and joy, a delight in the law of God. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's so important for our sake. Because God loves you, this is the message of Christmas, because God loved you for your sake, for my sake, for our sake. He who knew no sin, he would never sin. <laughs> He whose heart was only right, only pure, totally undefiled. He's the unblemished one. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. He has taken our sick blood. He has taken on our sick blood through a transfusion. And in exchange, he's given us his pure, undefiled, unblemished blood. Don't you see what this is saying? Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. Not just in a model way, not just in the temple. No, he went into heaven itself. That's what it's saying here. He, he became the sacrificial lamb before God himself for all of our sin. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He became the scapegoat. Our sinful blood was transfused to him. And his precious and undefiled and spotless blood was transfused to us. Paul says it this way in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, our inobedience to the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There's this theme throughout the Bible that the one who trusts God, the one who obeys God, the righteous one is blessed and invited in. But the one who disobeys God, the one who turns his back on God, the one that ignores God is, is put out and is cursed. Don't you see what Paul is saying here in Galatians? It's saying that Jesus 
The one who was blessed, the one who was righteous, the one who should have only been called in was cursed. (laughs) He was put out. He became the Azazel. He became the scapegoat. The most pure became the most defiled. The most holy became the most sinful. He who knew no sin became sin, the scapegoat, the curse. Jesus took on all of our sin. The thing about you, that if it was known today, you would quickly be canceled. <laughs> the thing about you in our heart, if, it was, if your heart was opened up, that if we all could see it today, we'd all move away from you and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And certainly God would. Jesus is saying, I will take on your blood. I will take on your record. I will take on your life. He who knew no sin became our sin and, and took on Death, without blood, there is no remission of sin, but Jesus has taken on the weight and the price of our sin and was bloodied on our behalf. He died in our place. He took on the full weight of God's wrath in our place. You know, if you think about sin, a life of sin, we read in scripture, is equal to hell, this eternal judgment, eternal separation from God. Think about the sacrifice of Jesus. That on the cross, being forsaken and stricken by God, not only did he bear the hell of one man, but he, he bared the hell of all that would believe in him. What a sacrifice. What a cost. What a lamb. See, this is why Jesus had to be both man and God. He had to be man because the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for the sin of humanity, but the blood of humanity can And he had to be God because he didn't just trade places with one man. He he traded places with all who would believe in him, all who would look to him by faith. The text says it this way. Christ has now entered on our behalf, verse 24 of Hebrews 9, not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies. The temple is just a copy of the true thing but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he appeared in God's presence with our record, took on our punishment, and offers for our sake his record. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year, not with his blood, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. But here's the, here's the sacrifice of Christ. As it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away Sin by the sacrifice of himself. Don't you see the power of his blood? We talked about the pro- the, why we need blood and the problem with all other blood, but there is a blood. This is the blood that actually has the power to redeem us. Jesus took on our sin-filled, death-giving blood and has faced the full wrath of God in our place. And in exchange, he has given us, he has transfused to us his undefiled, righteous blood in return. You know, you hear stories of people that this has happened to them. They were going to die, and they got a blood transfusion. They were going to die, and they got an organ. And and they live the rest of their life in light of that. You you know people like this. Some of you may be like this. That There's somebody that died, but now because they died, you're going to live. You you got the, the, the organ that you needed. And people I know that that's happened to them, they live the rest of their life in light, in light of that. And so not only does Jesus have, not only does the blood of Jesus actually have the power to atone, 
to forgive us for our sins, to make us pure before God. It actually has the power to change us. If you understand this sacrifice, you won't need another one. You'll be changed by it. It'll change you. It has to change you. It has to change you. If you're callous toward this, if God has done this for you, if God has shown you such mercy that he would give his own son, that Jesus would be put forward as your sacrificial lamb, if he's exchanged places with you and gotten what you deserve and, and freely gives you what he deserves, if that's happened to you, it has to change you. That can't just happen. And so now the result of this is that we, we grow in holiness, we grow in righteousness, it changes our hearts, our love for God grows. Look at how the text ends. This is verse 27. Just as appointed man wants to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Christ having taken our judgment, we don't have to fear judgment, will appear a second time, not to deal with our sin because he's already dealt with it, but to save those, to redeem those, to give life to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the question. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Is that your life? <laughs> Is that your life? You're like, I am eagerly waiting for Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Do you know what he did for me? He gave me his blood. He gave me his life. He's given me life. I was dead. I'm eagerly waiting for him. Do you long to the day for the day that you see him? Is he your life? I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. He's your life now. You have no life without him. You're eagerly waiting for him. He's going to save those who eagerly wait for him. If this has happened to you, it, it has to change you. So this, is, it doesn't, it, this blood doesn't just have the power to atone for your sin. His blood actually has the power to change your whole life, to lead you to be humble, to be merciful, to be a lover of God, to pursue righteousness, to desire the things of the Lord. Have you ever seen the play Les Mis? Or maybe you've seen the movie with... Russell Crowe, who you might, you know, question that casting call. But anyway, <laughs> so the movie, or the play, if you've read the play or seen the play, it, it, it juxtaposes these two very interesting characters. They both start off kind of very hard men. One's Jean Valjean, who kind of is the protagonist. And he starts off, and he's hard. I mean, he's hard. He... he he stole bread, and for stealing a loaf of bread, he goes to jail for 19 hard years. And he's angry, and his whole life is messed up, and everything's been taken away from him. He's bitter. And he, he's poor. He can't find his way in the world. And, and there's this bishop. And this bishop brings him in, and he's kind. He's kind to him. He gives him food to eat, and he gives him a place to sleep. And in desperation, I mean, he's so desperate, Jean Valjean steals the bishop's silver and runs away in the night. Well, he's caught. He gets caught by the guards. And now he's with the guards, and he's in front of the bishop. And, you know, I mean, he went to jail for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. Now he's stolen the bishop's silver. I mean, he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. And the bishop, in this moment of amazing mercy, he says, oh, he didn't steal the silver. I gave him the silver. In fact, <laughs> he forgot some. Here's more silver, Jean Valjean. And as the guards leave, the, the, the bishop looks at Jean Valjean and he says, remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become 
a better man, an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I've saved your soul from God. And you know what? Jean Valjean, he saw this act of mercy. He realized that the, the bishop had given him life. I mean, he was dead, and the bishop had given him life, and he not only had given him life, he'd given him this silver, he'd given him a chance, and he's changed. He was totally changed by that. This hardened man, his, his heart became soft. He was humble. He was totally renewed because of this act of mercy. He got the act of mercy, and it, it changed him. And he went on to be an honest man and a good man, and he gave himself for others. But there was this other character, Javert, and Javert was the police inspector who was imprisoning Valjean. And much of the story is about Javert kind of pursuing uh, Valjean and, and trying to get after him, and he's a very evil character. And, and Javert also was a hardened man. He was ashamed of his childhood. And the way that he was going to justify himself, and I don't want you to hear this, the way that he was going to justify himself was going to be really righteous and prove how much more righteous he was than others. And there's some of you today that are doing that in whatever way. Maybe it's religious law. I know I'm righteous because I do this. I know I'm better than that guy. But you're not humble. You're not kind. You're not self-giving. You're only caring about just racking up points. Maybe some of you, it's just financial success or gain. I know I'm righteous because I've done this. Look at my life. Look at how much I have. Look at how that guy doesn't have as much. Javier was like that, like some of you are. But then he got broken. There's this moment when this revolutionary movement, he gets captured and he's, he's about to die. He should have died. And Valjean shows up. And Valjean, who's friends with the revolutionaries, saves him and he lets him go free. He's merciful to him. He's merciful. In the same way that the bishop was merciful to Valjean, he is merciful to Javert, who, if you know the story, the whole story, Javert is chasing down Valjean and trying to kill him, and he shows him this great mercy. And Javert, he's so hardened by his own worldview. He's so hardened by how he understands the world that he can't deal with it. I mean, he ends up committing suicide. He ends up killing us. He can't live in a world with this kind of mercy. He can't live in a world that doesn't work according to the way that I think it works. And I just want to say this. It's Christmas time. You've inevitably heard the story of Jesus' blood and his cross before. And there's two kinds of people here today. The kind of people who hear that story and you're softened by it. You realize, what do I have but the mercy of God? <laughs> What do I have but the kindness of God who in his kindness and mercy has sent his son Jesus to rescue my defiled life with his perfectly righteous life, to become the curse for me so that I could be honored, so that he was put out so that I could be brought in. You either live by that and it will humble you and it will make you so loving and so merciful and kind to other people and your heart will be purified by this gospel over and over and over again or you will be hardened to it. And you'll leave today and you'll say, well, of course I don't believe that blood nonsense. You'll just reaffirm your worldview. You'll just say, well, this is why I don't believe these things. This is why I don't believe this nonsense that these Christians hold to. I pray that this Christmas, that as we ponder these things, we would be the kind of people, that you would be the kind of people that eagerly awaits Jesus. <laughs> you would see him as the one that you should eagerly wait for, that he would be your hope, that you eagerly wait for him. You would remember what he's done for you in his first coming, and because of that, because of that mercy, because of that love, you would eagerly await his return. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that today, before you, the almighty, holy God, that our hearts would be soft. We wouldn't be hardened by our own self-centeredness and our own self-righteousness. That we would be softened by your mercy and your love to us. Lord, that we would come to terms with our brokenness, with our need for a savior. And the Lord, as we meditate on these things, as we understand the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus, you would renew us, you would change us. We wouldn't just be the kind of Christians that say, well, let's do another sacrifice, let's do another sacrifice, let's do another sacrifice, I've messed up here, but we would, that the kindness of the Lord would bring us to repentance and to faith. That we would trust that you, O oh Lord, the very God that we've sinned against is the only one that can save us. You're a great hope. And that our response to that would be one of love faith. Give us faith today, Lord, to believe these things, to eagerly await the coming of the Lord. Until, Lord, we need no more faith, until the day that we are with him, until the day that we can see him face to face, Lord. Give us this kind of faith today, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, for the sake of your glory, for the good of this church.